Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Alina Martin, Editorial Assistant at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and non-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing what role charities might be able to play in the government's levelling up agenda. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got a couple of Valentine's-related stories. I'm going to apologise for that. When I asked how you guys, in the office earlier this week, I asked how you felt about Valentine's Day, you and Emily were overwhelmingly positive about this. Yes, we were. Um, Personally, any excuse to celebrate anything ever, I'm a big fan of. (laughs) And I mean, what better thing to celebrate than love? And not just romantic love. There are so many different kinds of love worth thinking about. Um, for instance, this uh, on Monday, on Valentine's Day, I made dinner for my friends. And while we were chatting, I realized that I'd been friends with one of them for like 10 years, which is amazing. We have been tolerating each other through all our awkward teenage phases for a decade. <laughs> and if that's not love, I don't know what is. See, that is that is very lovely. And I can get on board with, you know, celebrating your friends and, and even like... I don't hate Valentine's Day. I just, eh, sorry. I, I honestly, I prefer Pancake Day. Like, if we're going to celebrate <laughs> things with friends, let's celebrate Pancake Day. I am a big believer that you shouldn't dunk on something that someone else happens to like just because you don't. You know, I can't stand people like, well, I think it's rubbish, so you shouldn't do it. So, in deference to that, what we've got is a Valentine's Day themed uh, good news bulletin. But I promise for those of you who are not as enamoured with Valentine's Day as perhaps Alina and Emily are, uh, I promise it will it will have something for you as well. But first, let's talk about levelling up and see if we can find out what that means for charities. In its 2019 manifesto, the Conservative Party pledged that one of its key projects would be levelling up part of the UK. This levelling up, it said, would involve investing in towns, cities and rural and coastal areas and giving those areas more control over how investment is made. The central idea to the levelling up agenda is to address geographical inequality and improve opportunities across the country. Earlier this month, the government published its long-awaited white paper, laying out how it plans to carry the levelling up agenda forwards. The paper is 322 pages long and, uh, as many people have pointed out, uh, encompasses 7,000 years of history, mentioning the Medicis and Carthage and four references to Jericho. Um, But among that, it does also mention charities and the voluntary sector. But the paper did back up an earlier pledge to run a consultation on the possibility of using almost £900 million in dormant assets funds to establish a community wealth fund. And it promised the $2.6 billion shared prosperity fund would be decentralised to local leaders as far as possible with investments set to regenerate communities. Theo Clay, policy manager at the think tank MPC, welcomed the white paper's focus on data-driven goals and said there was potential for civil society to be involved at many points. He said, The white paper sets out an ambitious and positive framework for action on levelling up, but has less on the resources necessary to make it happen. This is the gap that needs to be narrowed if levelling up is to deliver for those who need it most. Following the publication of the white paper, voluntary sector figures called on the government to ensure the charity sector is involved in its plans for local communities through the levelling up agenda. To discuss the white paper and how charities could be involved in levelling up, I spoke to the MPC's Head of Policy, Leah Davis. Leah, thank you for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with an overview. What is in this white paper? What isn't in it? What's the good news? What's the bad news? Okay, so first things first, I think the white paper has been long awaited. It's been a couple of years since it was first um, mentioned. The the idea of levelling up was it was in the manifestos. And it's been quite fuzzy what it's meant, actually. Lots of time has been spent by people saying this is what should be in it. So it's really great to have a white paper that now says, here is what government thinks levelling up is and what it's about and what it's going to do. And it had kind of four areas where it says these are things we think it needs to achieve. One of them was about boosting productivity, pay, jobs and living standards. The second one was about spreading opportunities and improving public services. The third one about restoring a sense of community, local pride and belonging. And the fourth one was about empowering local leaders and communities. And all of those are about doing it in places where it's most needed. So I think from a charity perspective, Probably the third and fourth of those are going to be the most interesting bit of the white paper. The paper then had a fair amount of criticism about it. It's 300 pages long. At time, it reads a bit like a thesis, (laughs) but it's got some really useful information in there. So one of the things it does is it sets 12 30-year missions. What it's saying is that instead of having kind of short-term targets, they have far more long-term targets. And they're missions on things like health and reducing health inequalities. They're on housing, they're on crime, and really importantly, things like well-being, which has never really been in there before, sits alongside as one of the overarching missions, things on pay and productivity and living standards. So I think there were some really important parts in terms of setting the tone and the narrative for for what the white paper will be in terms of what, what it's covering. And then underneath that, there was lots of information about how government recognised that Perhaps what it's done so far on trying to level up, particularly regional inequalities, they didn't really know what worked and didn't. So they needed to be much better at gathering data. And they were quite honest about that. So they had lots in there about making sure they understood what worked and didn't. And that's something at MPC we've we've often called for because often the sector is just, we don't really know the value of it. Government really doesn't measure it. And they're starting to recognise that's important. And they've also obviously put in things about really making sure that we devolve power down to more local levels. So they want to introduce more mayors. But there was also lots in there about how we make decision making down at the more kind of community level. And then underneath that, there was lots of information about the policies that government wants to introduce. Now, some of those, quite a lot of those actually, had already been announced. So there wasn't lots of new things in there, particularly in terms of new money. Government had already announced a lot of the kind of targeted levelling up funds. There was the 4.8 billion levelling up fund there was a 3.6 billion towns fund in England, the community ownership fund. We know there was a UK shared prosperity fund, which was coming down the line as well. But what it did do was announce some kind of new policies in there. And I think what's good for, for charities and what's good about it is that there were far more mentions of civil society and charity than I think I've seen in a long time. When you looked at the 2019 manifestos, both Conservative and Labour, there was barely any mention of charities or civil society in there. In this paper, it talks about them a lot and the importance of involving them in whatever happens on levelling up. And there's lots of opportunities, actually, for charities to get involved and help shape what this could be. So, for example, there are strategies that are being developed on community involvement. There's going to be one on community spaces and relationships. They're going to review neighbourhood governance. So these are all things that charities can feed into. Um, on the on the side, we said what's not there. Well, I think a lot of people are going to read that and say there's not really much new money, is there? And the answer is no, not really. 
and our research from NPC that we did before this was launched, we looked at those targeted levelling up funds and said, right, how much of this is going to go on social infrastructure and on people? And we found that as little as 2% could go be invested in people from those targeted levelling up funds. And there might be a bit more for some of the physical infrastructure that could have a kind of social purpose, but it's not a huge amount more. And this doesn't really change that as far as we can see. There does seem to be maybe a bit more coming through, but it's not quite clear. So I think that's still a gap. And I think a lot of charities work on those big social issues that are facing the country. And they're not going to see, depending on the sector, they're not going to see a huge amount of change. Um, I guess the other thing is we we asked people last year, we did a representative polling and we asked people, what would you expect to see in an area that had been levelled up? And we gave them options. We gave them both social issues as well as kind of hard infrastructure, like, you know, you know, improved um, high streets or rail links. And we were quite surprised, actually. But what they told us was the things that they were most important about they expect to see in a place that had been levelled up was reduced crime, reduced poverty and reduced homelessness. And it was the physical infrastructure didn't come till later. So although there were missions around housing and around crime, you wouldn't really, the, the funding and the policies that support it aren't necessarily there. So I think there will be a lot of charities that could be disappointed by that. I think the final bit is there's, you know, there's a lot of things that are being promised for the future. There's a lot of things you can feed into now, but they're not actually going to be delivering for a while. You're not going to see that change for a while. So I think there's a lot of charities that will be expecting maybe to see a bit more a bit sooner. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And and sort of, as you say, like the levelling up agenda at its heart, the focus is on inequalities, communities, local opportunities. And they're all things that the charity sector really cares about and has the expertise to kind of be a part of and contribute to. And, you know, all the while we've been having these conversations about the levelling up agenda. And yeah, the key question has been, OK, what is the role for charities and funders here? Does this paper answer that question, do you think? I think it partially answers it. I think your point is a good one, which is that the charity sector is really broad. It almost touches so many different parts of our lives, doesn't it? I mean, some charities are working on very frontline service delivery of kind of social needs that they're giving, you know, um, debt advice to people. They're delivering housing services. They are supporting people who are in the criminal justice system, whereas others are kind of, you know, running museums and sports clubs and, you know, lost pets charities. So we've got a real diverse group of charities. So I think it would be really hard for government to say specifically, this is what charities involvement should be. What I think they have done is explain that they think they have an important role, and they've given them some opportunities to do it. I think the challenges that charities are going to have is knowing how to get involved, who to speak to. So there's so many different opportunities. So you could get involved in a local board, you could get involved in a pilot on um community covenants which are looking at how in a given local area local authorities public bodies and you know community groups could work better together to understand what the needs are in that area and what's going to happen you could also get involved um in the uk shared prosperity fund and the implementation of that i think the challenge like as i said is which one do you get involved in now they have said in the white paper there's going to be a director or a number of directors within department of leveling up housing and communities who is your, like your point of contact for a local area. Now, they've said it's for the kind of lead, local leader. So I assume they mean a kind of local authority or probably a mayor that they're, they're looking to create. But they've also said it's for innovative policy partnerships and interventions. Mm. So for me, what I would read is I think charities do loads of that kind of work. They're always doing innovative new ways of delivering services. So I think as a charity, it's going to be really important to 
speak to your local authority, ask them, how do I get involved in this board or who's going to be on this board? Um, find out who is the person in the Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities and just really start asking. Because I think if we don't ask and we don't keep making the point that we're here and we're ready to help out and we want to be involved in shaping what happens, there is a, a risk that we'll kind of go back to how it worked before, which is where the, the, the civil society weren't really that involved. I think if you're a small charity, you just don't have the capacity to do that. So I would be speaking to your infrastructure bodies, membership bodies, the people who can do this for you. And also here at MPC, we 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 are tracking what government's happening and we're trying to put as much information as we can out there to make it more accessible. So we have blogs and lots of other ways. Talking to you guys today is a great example where we're just trying to make sure that charities know as much as they can. So yeah, take a look on what we're doing as well if you want to have updates. Yeah, because it seems like such a big nebulous thing, right? The idea that there'd be one person you could go to and say, how can I get involved as opposed to this charity that does something completely different? But yes, that, that sort of, yeah, knowing how to get involved seems like a, a, a real stumbling block that many charities are going to have. So um, yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned that, I want to pick up on, you mentioned the Shared Prosperity Fund. Um, so this is something the paper talks about and it's been put forward by government as a replacement for the lost income sources like the European Social Fund, uh, which UK charities can no longer access following Brexit. What's happening with the Shared Prosperity Fund and what does the paper say about it? So the paper doesn't say a huge amount, but what was released alongside the paper was um, pre-launch guidance. And I have to admit, I don't think I've ever seen pre-launch guidance before, but I think <laughs> it's a good thing because um, the government announced the UK Shared Prosperity Fund years ago and it's been quite quiet actually there haven't been many updates so it's really mm. good to see this um to see this uh guidance launched what it told us was that um essentially the previous funds that were the european social fund and the european um, regional development fund the uk share prosperity fund is going to replace them and what they did was things like they did everything from skills programs to investing in local smes to helping you know local business clusters uh helping businesses decarbonise, helping people quite far from the labour market get into jobs. It was quite an important fund for some charities, particularly those who supported those who were kind of far from the labour market and helping them get jobs and skills. So I don't think it's enough to just run a skills programme. People, Some people aren't able to get themselves to a position where they can just join a skills programme and suddenly get a job. So they were doing work to overcome lots of challenges in people's lives like you know, do they have stable housing? How's their mental health? All these sort of things which can get in the way of people getting jobs and actually kind of getting into paid and stable employment. That's what these charities were doing. So this fund was quite important. What they've announced with the UK Share Prosperity Fund is essentially a lot of that funding will continue and will be similar to what we saw under the European funds. I think the downside of it is that the bit that the fund was in three parts. The third part, the bit that would support a lot of charities um, who were working on um, some of those programmes I just talked about. Essentially, that's being delayed until 2024-25. So there could be a two-year gap. Now, local authorities can make the case for why that gap should be filled, but that could be quite hard to do when they've got so many other competing priorities. So it feels like it's a bit of a missed opportunity from government and a bit of a strange choice because there could be a big gap in provision for some of these quite important programmes. In terms of stuff that was published at the same time, um, the report came out on the same day as the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport also released its long-awaited response to the review by Danny Kruger, the Conservative MP for Devizes. So his review was looking at how the government can make the most of the voluntary sector in the UK's recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. 
In its response to the Kruger review, the government said it would take steps, including reviewing the National Lottery Community Fund, revising how charities are classified on the Charity Commission's online register, and taking further steps to boost community ownership. What for you were the most interesting things to come out of both the Kruger review and the government's response to it? In some ways, it's it's some of the things you've just mentioned. I think in terms of the response, um, we were really heartened to see quite a lot of the things that were mentioned in the Kruger report had kind of made their way into the white paper. What you didn't find was that there was a white paper and it was, oh, by the way, there's this, this report here, actually. It was, it was mentioned in the white paper. So I think that that's, that's positive in itself and not entirely surprising, bearing in mind that Danny Kruger has now moved into a role which, in which he's supporting um, Michael Gove, working with him. Um, I think that the positive things we really saw from it were particularly a lot of information around classification data, making sure we know what the value is. I think it's really hard for Treasury at the moment to make a decision that we will invest in these social programs. I think they've got numbers and metrics for physical things. They go, well, if we build this, this is what our calculations tell us in terms of the return of what it will do. They don't have that for civil society or some of those social programs. And I think it's holding things back. So I think that feels like a really big step forward that they're going to start looking at that. I think some of the pilots that are being looked at um, around community covenants and around, um, yeah, just just how communities feed in and, how civil society is just part of that decision-making again. It has so much knowledge and intelligence about what happens on the ground in local areas that just can't be captured by government data or ONS data. And finally, there's some routes for them to actually be involved. So I think that for us is some of the you know really positive things that have come out of that, that Kruger review and the government's response to it. So some of the initiatives that we are seeing coming out of the kind of government's response to the Kruger review, what do charities need to do to get involved in these initiatives? Well, I think it's a similar picture to what what's happening with the white paper is we don't quite know where these pilots are going to be. Um, mm. We don't know, for example, that there is going to be a new strategy on community spaces and, and um, relationships. So I think almost charities just need to keep an eye out on what's going and again, like, ask their local authorities, because I think that's the way that they can get involved. But until we have more details, it's quite hard to say. And until it's shaped up a bit more, it's quite hard to say. But I think if you are a, ch- a, a charity that has capacity to start asking questions of the of you know um, Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, I'd start doing it now and start making the case that you're here and you're ready to help. And if you haven't got the capacity, speak to the infrastructure bodies, to the membership organisations, and ask them what they're doing and what you think um, what you think should happen. Brilliant. And yeah, we touched on it just now. You sort of said that it's in both the Leveling Up white paper and the Kruger review. There's this emphasis they're both placing on data and local knowledge. So what does this mean for charities and what are the opportunities to do more with data that we're not doing at the moment? So one of the things that we found was that there's a lot of government data. It's not always very real time and it doesn't always capture where social needs are. So when the pandemic started, We had calls from government and from funders and others asking us, right, what's going on on the ground? Where's money needed? Where's their different social needs? What's happening? And the answer was there just wasn't really the information at that local level. There wasn't the information in terms of government stats and uh, data, but we also weren't collecting all the intelligence that charities had. So charities working on the front line knew, for example, there might be more debt advice. There might be more people coming to them. Food banks was a good example, but there might be more people coming to them with issues around evictions and housing. And simply, there wasn't a way of, of, of finding out that information. So government, to be fair, 
brought together groups who were looking at this to try and work out what was what was needed at the time. And they did manage to make the best of what they could with the data that they had. But I think, um, and, you know, at MPC, we at the time launched um, a dashboard, which is a local needs dashboard. It was really simple. It just said, in a given local authority, what's the kind of social needs? What's happening with the coronavirus? And since then, we've added in data from organisations who are delivering services who can say, well, here's what we think is the need in different areas as well. So, for example, how much debt advice are, are, are people needing in different parts of the country? It's a really good indicator to know, OK, there's, there's a problem here in terms of people's income. So we think there's a real opportunity to not just be better at making government data more granular, more local. That's very one way. There's also loads of information from charities that should be fed back as well. So that's where we think that the one of the big opportunities is for charities to, to get involved. I should say that, you know, giving data and this information to government, it takes time and it costs charities money and they don't really have a lot of that. So government might have to give them some money and support to help them do this well, because <laughs> otherwise you're asking for lots of information. And also, I think charities will be right in saying, right, well, we if you give this information, what's the difference it's going to make? How is it going to help our community? And how is it going to make things better? But again, I think with so much information about data in, in, the, um, in the white paper, I mean, it feels like that door is open and we just need to really be knocking on it. Yeah, so it feels very much that it hinges on those perennial, hard-to-tackle questions of impact and funding. So, yes, two huge issues for the charity sector. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Leah. That's really helped to shed some light on what's going on with this white paper, where we are with levelling up. Thank you so much for having me. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. And as we said at the beginning of the show, we've got a Valentine's Day themed bulletin this week. Okay, Elena, what have you got for us? Today's good news story is about two baby otters who are brought together just in time for Valentine's Day. Oh, I know. A female otter pup called Eve and a male called Juniper were both brought to the Stapley Grange Wildlife Centre in Cheshire. They were found as orphans and would have been unable to survive in the wild alone at such a young age. Eve was rescued by the RSPCA on Christmas Eve, which is where she gets her name from. Oh, Yeah. And Juniper was found about a week later, and after receiving emergency treatment and they were stable, they were both moved to Stapley Grange, where wildlife experts brought them together in the hopes of a speedier rehabilitation and it seems that it worked even jennifer are already feeling much better playing together in a paddock with straw and chasing each other around and spending time together will also help the baby otters to prepare for their return to the wild um, in fact while they are not incredibly social animals outside of the breeding season Otters are often found in pairs, and I think one of the most widely known bits of otter trivia is that they hold hands when they float on their backs so they so that they don't lose each other. This is very sweet and melts everyone's heart. It is. However, while that may sound super romantic, um, we're still close to Valentine's Day, so we can read it like that. But hand-holding is something that usually happens between mothers and pups, and the reason is a little bit more pragmatic. Um, basically, baby otters don't want to drift away from their primary source of food while they're asleep. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, can sympathise. A bit more self-serving. I feel like you went down a bit of a little otter 
otter hole rabbit hole of of, uh, of of facts and otter trivia this week uh i did i had a really fun time in the office and i found some <laughs> other interesting facts um one of them is that otters are a keystone species which means that they define the entire ecosystem so basically if otters are thriving in a body of water it means that that ecosystem is very healthy. Um, and they are also a Lazarus species, more specifically the hairy-nosed otters are. Um, and what that means is they were considered extinct and then they were rediscovered again, as if they had come back from the dead, hence the name Lazarus. Um, this happened in 2010 when scientists found hairy-nosed otters again in Borneo after they'd been declared extinct in 1998. And last but not least, my favourite otter fact is that their poop smells like violets. Well, I think we've all, we've all met people who think their poop smells like violets. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, for some otters, it seems that is literally the case. Um, that is fantastic. Uh, yeah, come for the white paper chat. Stay for the otter <laughs> poop discussion. Uh, brilliant. Um, so, but the subject of poop brings us very nicely to my Valentine's Day story for the bulletin, uh, which is um, uh, Bristol Animal Rescue Centre, or Bristol Ark, uh, asked people to turn poo into pounds for Valentine's Day. Um, so for £5, you could submit the name of your ex, or indeed anyone else you feel has wronged you, uh, and the Animal Rescue Centre would take that name and put it on a litter tray for its cats to do their business on. <laughs> Beautiful. I have a couple of names. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I love this story. So they like they Bristol Art created this form to fill in and it was like only first names, nicknames or initials um, to keep it kind of, you know, uh, safe because the internet is that sort of place. Um, the charity then took a picture of the litter tray and shared it on social media using a fantastic hashtag. It's not me, it's poo. <laughs> wonderful i love it i love it so much uh so apparently this kind of glorious charitable pettiness isn't new uh back in 2015 another animal related cause the bronx zoo ran a valentine special inviting people to name a cockroach after their ex <laughs> that is brilliant so good yeah that is the kind of valentine's day campaign i am here for i think the 2022 equivalent to that would be to name a snake after your ex that's the meme now. Ooh, nice. I like that. Well, on that cheerful and not at all vindictive note, uh, <laughs> we'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Alina Martin. I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Leah Davis, and our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>